All right. I'm not used to Brandon not being here. I almost stepped down there for a minute, and you would have been standing there waiting for me. All right, we're going to look at the Word of God this morning. We're going to take a break from Revelation for a few weeks. And this morning, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. It is not a great theological passage that we're going to look at, although there are theological truth and practical truth for us that we're going to see in this. But we're going to read the first 17 verses together, Matthew chapter 1. I guess I should get in the right book here. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ through Joseph. And it's what normally as we, if you do any kind of a regular Bible reading, when you come to passages like this, you're like, okay, I'm going to skim through this real quick because I don't know what there is in it and I can't pronounce half of these names, okay? So we just kind of go, okay, okay, that's good. Now let's get to the good stuff. All right, and, and uh, you know, I'm guilty. In the past, I've done that a lot of times. There's a couple genealogies. You just go, oh, here we go again, okay? But there's substance here. You know, all Scripture is given by God. It's all inspired by God, and it's all good for us to learn from. And so this morning, we're going to look at this genealogy of Jesus Christ, and I've got a couple of lessons that I want to show you from this passage that God has given us for a reason, okay? So let's start at verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 17. I'll do my best with these names, okay? The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. And Judas begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar, and Perez begat Ezram, and Ezram begat Aram, and Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nason, and Nason begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz of, of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. And Solomon begat Rehoboam, and Rehoboam begat Abiah, and Abiah begat Asa, and Asa begat Josaphat. And Josaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat Ozias. Ozias begat Joatham, and Joatham begat Achaz, and Achaz begat Ezekias, and Ezekias begat Manassas. Manassas begat Ammon, and Ammon begat Josias, and Josias begat Jeconias, his brethren, and his brethren, about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Salathiel, and Salathiel begat Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begat Abiad, and Abiad begat Eliakim. Eliakim begat Azor, and Azor begat Sado, and, uh, Sadok, and Sadok begat Achim, and Achim begat Eliad, and Eliad begat Eleazar, and Eleazar begat Mathan, and Mathan begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the carrying away unto Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away unto Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Let's take a minute and pray, and then we'll look at what God has in this passage for us. Father, we just look to you now as we read your word and as we read passages like this, sometimes we're just confused by the names and by what's there and what its purpose is. 
But Lord, I pray that you would teach us now. Help us to see the significance of why you've included this in your divine revelation to us and why it's important for us to see the things that are here. Lord, we want you to be glorified. We want Jesus to be lifted up as we study your word together. So send your spirit to guide us, to teach us the things we need to know. Open our hearts and minds to receive what you have for us today. And Lord, fill me with your spirit because I need your help. I can't do this on my own. I'm just a mouthpiece. So use me to proclaim your word. Give me wisdom. Give me the words to say so that you might proclaim yourself through your word today. And we'll give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. As I mentioned, this is probably a portion of scripture you haven't, if you've read it very much, you haven't paid a whole lot of attention to. And you may have recognized a few names in that list, probably not all of them. Some of them you're like, who are those people? Okay. But this is a a very typical and very important thing in Jewish history. And you have to remember, first of all, that the Bible is not a Gentile book. This is a Jewish book written entirely by Jews. It is all written to Jews, and there are exceptions to that, but it's uh, Jewish Christians in the New Testament that did the writing, the, the apostles, and those people that work with the apostles. So when we look at Scripture from a very Jewish perspective, it gives us a new understanding of what we're looking at, and it brings to it some relevance that we may have missed before. And that is the point in some of these genealogies, okay? Um, But again, this may not seem important to us. And we go through this and we'll go, I don't get it. Okay, it's, it's kind of like the guy who was asked to write a review of the phone book. You know, he was a great reviewer of books, and he said, some guy asked him, why don't you write a review of the phone book? So here was his summary of the phone book. Great cast of characters, weak plot. Okay, that's the phone book for you. Now, I've read some other books that may have been true for. But that's how we look at genealogy sometimes. Okay, uh, yeah, I get these pick people. What does it matter? Okay, what, what's the point behind it? Well, here's the importance for the Jews. Genealogies were important for Jews. Very, very important. Because you go all the way back into the Old Testament, and when God apportioned the land to the different tribes of Israel, he made it very clear that that land that was given to them was never to be given or sold to anybody else. Not because it belonged to Israel, but because it belonged to God. And God was giving them that land in stewardship, really, for them to enjoy, but also for them to use for his glory. And so he apportioned those pieces of property to different tribes with the specific command not to sell it. And so when a piece of land was sold, a property, a family uh, uh, house or something, if that property was sold, they would have to start by going back to the genealogies to make sure that the person that was buying the property belonged to the tribe in which that land rested. And if you didn't belong to that tribe, you could not purchase that property. Okay? So genealogies were very important practically to the Jews in that way because they wanted to make sure they followed God's command not to sell or give away the property that was supposed to belong to that tribe. Now, unfortunately, as Israel moved forward in their generations, uh, that command was lost, okay? But for those who are dedicated Jews, 
that's a very important thing for them. So that's an important thing as far as genealogies for the Jews. They paid very close attention to that as far as land was concerned. For the Jews, their worship consisted of worship at the temple. If you go back to the Old Testament and all through the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, you have Jews worshiping at the temple. The people that were in charge of that worship were the priesthood, and they were specifically from the tribe of Levi. And you had to be in the priestly families in order to be a priest from the tribe of Levi. And so that succession of priests depended upon genealogies to make sure the person who was going to become a priest was from the tribe of Levi and was from a priestly family. Okay, so that was a second application that was important to them. And then the third one that eventually became very important to them was the heirship to the throne. Remember, Saul was appointed by, was picked by God to be the first king, and he utterly failed God, and so God appointed David. And God gave David a promise called the Davidic Covenant, and in that Davidic covenant, he told David as he was king that the kingship, the throne, would never depart from his family. And based on that promise of God, the Jews, therefore, will only accept as king someone who comes from that kingly line of David, the rightful king. Now, there were lots of uh, alternate or false kings, if you will. There were very bad kings. Okay, so... The rightful king depends upon the genealogies to prove that he is in the line of David and that he belongs on the throne. Okay, so for the Jews, genealogies were important. In fact, passages like we just read this morning are crucial for them because this, this is life. I mean, it's property, it's land, it's ruling, it's worshiping. Everything depends upon genealogies for them. So the thing that we need to remember is... Just because it's important for Israel, it becomes important for us. Because God included it here, there's some importance that we have to see. Now, when we get to the Christmas story, as we call that in Luke chapter 2, when we see the birth of Jesus Christ, genealogies become important again. Because the story in Luke, uh, Luke 2 starts, In those days there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And so everyone went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. Now that own city doesn't mean the city they lived in. It means the city or the area, the land from which their family originated, the tribe that they belonged to. And they would go to the capital city of that land to register. And so now all of a sudden, if you didn't know genealogies, you had no idea where you were supposed to go. Well, the Bible records for us that Mary and Joseph knew exactly where to go. Okay, both of them. And as we read in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph was from the line of David. And so he had to go to Jerusalem. Mary, in Luke chapter 1, also was from the tribe of, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 3, but Mary also was from the tribe of David, or from David's line, from the tribe of Judah. She had to go to, to, uh, I'm sorry, Bethlehem, not Jerusalem, Bethlehem, because that's where David was born. Okay, so they had to go to Bethlehem to register, both of them. Now, the genealogies, both sides, we read Matthew's this morning, you can read Mary's in Luke 3, but both sides lead through David down to Mary and Joseph and then to Jesus. And it proves that Jesus 
actually, no matter how you look at his parentage on earth, he belongs on the throne. He is the rightful heir to that throne. But all of that shows the importance of these genealogies, not just to the Jews, but to us as well. Because as the church, we're not necessarily looking at the world and life from a Jewish perspective, okay? Especially as much as they did in the early church. We have been departed from that for almost 2,000 years, and so now we're in a Western culture. It's more Hellenistic, Roman, Greek influence, more Gentile influence in our current culture. We don't think in Jewish terminology and in Jewish perspective. But where we will end up is going to be very important in a Jewish perspective, because when Christ comes back at the rapture, we will go to heaven with him for a little while. And when he comes at his second coming, we will come back to earth with him and be on earth in his millennial kingdom. That is the highlight of history for all Jews. That's what they're looking forward to. Now, a lot of them don't understand who it is that's going to be ruling and what he's going to be doing. They've messed that up. But we as the church need to understand that. And so for Christ to sit on the throne in his millennial kingdom and we will be part of that kingdom... This becomes important to us, okay? Because Christ has to be the rightful king. So why is it important? Well, I just mentioned, number one, it establishes Jesus as part of the royal family. He is in the line of David. And to a Jew specifically, there is no more important question about who's on that throne than what family they come from, okay? To us, We look at Jesus Christ and we think, well, he's the Lord of heaven. He's our Savior. He's the Son of God. It doesn't matter if he's a Jew to us. It does matter, okay? Because it was a fulfillment of God's promise way back in Genesis chapter 3. And if Jesus isn't a Jew, then all the Old Testament means nothing. So it's important that he is a Jew, that he's in the line of David. God had said, that the Messiah must come from the line of David. And so the Messiah must come from the line of David. And we have that proof right here in Matthew chapter 1. And you can argue, well, you know, Joseph wasn't really Jesus' father. It was just an earthly father. He was kind of an adopted father. That's true. So then you go to Matthew cha- or, uh, Luke chapter 3 and read Mary's lineage because he was a physical, biological child of Mary. And she comes from the line of David as well. Now, if you want to argue that, well, Jesus' father was God himself, I think that gives him the right to sit on the throne regardless of what family he comes from. Okay, so that doesn't even come into the the conversation. But Mary and Joseph both are in the line of David, and so this genealogy is important in that regard. Um, Number two, and I apologize, I've got my pages mixed up here. But um, So first, we have... Jesus qualified to be on the throne. Second, it demonstrates that Jesus has historical human roots. Now, here's another important point about Jesus being the Savior, but also Jesus being the King. He is human. He has a human family. He comes from human beings. Now, he was conceived by the Holy Ghost in Mary, but he had a human mother, and he had human relatives on this earth. Okay? So he was 100 percent a human being if he was not 100 percent a human being he could not have been our savior because he could not have been our substitute to take our sin 
as a human being to suffer the consequence that sin demanded. But as 100%, 100%, and I'm not saying half God, half man, I'm saying 100% man as well as 100% God, but the 100% human means he qualified to be our substitute. And so therefore he could be our savior. If he was not human and we could not trace his genealogy back through human beings, then he doesn't qualify to be the savior of the world. So that's important. When we look at these genealogies, we understand that. And again, that's why God put it there. To show us these important things that we may not think about, but that are crucial to God's plan of salvation. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says, When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Okay? Born of a woman, human being. Born under the law, it means he was a Jew. He was under the law. He was a Hebrew in all essence of that word. And therefore, he qualified not just to be the king, but also to be our savior. He had to be a human being. This phrase in Galatians 4, when it says the time had fully come, that means uh, there's a reference there to fruit being perfectly ripe for picking. And the idea is, in God's plan, when Jesus was born, it was the perfect time. And he was the perfect man for that perfect opportunity. Okay, Any other person, any other place, any other time, any other purpose would have been irrelevant. But in God's time, at the right time, at the right place, for the right moment, Jesus was the right man. Okay, That's what the Bible tells us. And so Matthew tells us that Jesus had human roots. He had a mother and father, not an earthly father, but an adopted earthly father. He had brothers and sisters. He had cousins, just like all of us. And here's a revelation. If you haven't understood that yet, all of his family weren't perfect. And even this myth about Mary being perfect she wasn't she was a sinner just like all of us she needed a savior just like all of us she was exalted by god among women on earth but she was still a sinner in need of a savior and so jesus came from a sinful family that's what matthew chapter one teaches us he's a jew by blood he's a physical descendant of david and he has a human family so in all that not only does he deserve to inherit the throne but he is 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 completely human just like all of us. And that becomes important when you get to to Hebrews because Hebrews tells us that we have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who experienced all the things that we will experience. He went through all the sufferings, all the temptations, all the pain, all the emotions, all of the betrayal, all of the aloneness. He went through all of that as a human being. And you can say, well, yeah, but he was God. No, he was 100% human being, and he suffered through it just like we do. So we have to understand that Jesus' humanity is crucial, not just to our salvation, but to our comfort, because he knows what we're going through. Okay? And we find all that right here in Matthew chapter 1. It starts in Matthew chapter 1. Now, third... This is a record of God's grace. I'm going to show you something from this that's very interesting. Let me just throw some names out that are in this list in Matthew chapter 1. Okay, it starts with Abraham. Now, we all think of Abraham as, you know, 
Father Abraham, the father of the Israelites, he was a great man, great faith. He did. He did great faith. He was also a great sinner. Okay, I want to remind you of great sinners. Abraham lied about Sarah being his wife twice. Okay, he was not perfect. He was a liar. Move on through his family. Isaac, he also lied, betrayed people. Jacob was a cheater, a deceiver. He deceived his father. His son, Judah. By the way, Judah is the tribe of kings. It is the tribe from which Jesus came. That's why Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. The man, Judah, Jacob's son, was a fornicator. All right? He went and solicited a prostitute, or what he thought was a prostitute. That's the record we have of Judah, the head of the tribe of Judah, the kingly tribe. And this guy? Is at the head of that? Let's move down in his family. We come to David, great King David, right? An adulterer, a murderer, a deceiver. Remember his great sin with Bathsheba. That's a great model for your sons to follow, right? How about his son, Solomon? I just had this conversation about Solomon with somebody recently. Solomon had 300 wives and 600 concubines. That's 900 women he had to keep happy. I have trouble with one, okay? I don't know how he did it. (laughs) I do my best, okay? I do my best to keep her happy. You know, she's not trouble, but... I don't know how Solomon could have 900 people, women, that he had to worry about. But, but that was his legacy, in a sense. Yes, we know him as the wisest man on earth, right? He gave us most of the Proverbs. He contributed to the Psalms. So there's a lot of wisdom that came through Solomon. But look at the character that we're talking about. And, you know, you read Ecclesiastes, and it says... He experienced all the pleasure that there was to experience in the world. He did it all. Okay? And that means he did it all. And he said it all comes down to vanity. That was his conclusion. But he did it all, folks. So that's the kind of person we're talking about. You go farther into that line, Manasseh, that was in the line of David. He was one of the most evil kings that Israel ever had, dragged them into idolatry and all kinds of evil. Okay? Um, and, and you can keep going like this right down the line. So the point that we see here is that even though he's in a human family, we see God's grace because it's through sinful, broken, disgusting people that God brought a Savior. Jesus was sinless. He was perfect, but he came through sinful, broken people. So these people are not perfect. And that shows God's grace because you put yourself in that family tree, if you will, because we're after Jesus, but we're part of his family if we're saved. Does that make us perfect? No. We're sinful, broken, disgusting people, and yet God still allows us to be part of his family. Because it's not about us. It's not about these people. It's the focus on Jesus Christ that matters. So God uses sinful, broken, disgusting people 
even to glorify himself and to accomplish his purpose. He did to bring Jesus Christ into the world. He does to bring others into his kingdom and into his family. Now, with that being said, I want to point out four people in this list very quickly. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but four people. And they're unusual because in genealogies, most genealogies for the Jews focused on the men because the men were the progeny of the family. That's who carried on the family name. That's where the heirs came from. Okay, the men were the important people, and that's the ones that were listed in genealogies. In this genealogy, we have four women. Okay, if you didn't notice, when we read it, I'm going to point them out to you real quickly. Four women. Okay, and this is unusual. In verse 3, we have Tamar. In verse 5, we have Rahab and Ruth. In verse 6, we have Bathsheba. Now, Bathsheba's not named, but let me go through these very quickly. Tamar in verse 3. Let me just remind you of Tamar's story, okay? It says in verse 3, Judas, and that's Judah, by the way. That's another way to write Judah. Judah begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar. That's Tamar. Judah was her father-in-law, okay? So here's the story of Tamar. Tamar is the daughter-in-law of Judah. And Tamar married Judah's son, Ur, and then Ur died. And when her Ur died, his brother Onan rose up, and he did the brotherly duty that's commanded in the law, the, the kinsman redeemer thing, and he had to marry his brother's wife because he was not married to carry on that progeny of his brother. And so Onan married Tamar, and then he died. And so Tamar is here without children and now without a husband. She lost two already but she's supposed to have children to carry on the family name. And she was not willing to wait for God's timing and God's plan. So what she did was figure out, well, the sons are gone. What am I going to do now? And so she dresses up as a prostitute and solicits Judah, her father-in-law, because if she can have a child by him, it will carry on the family. And Judah goes into her, and she conceives. Okay? So as her plan was dressing up as a shrine prostitute. She seduced Judah into sleeping with her, and she became pregnant and gave birth to two boys. Their names were Perez and Zerah. And when she goes to Judah eventually, remember, he actually leaves some things of personal belonging with her to help her claim whatever he was going to pay her later. And then she comes forward and she says, are these yours? He didn't know it was her at the point that he committed this adultery, and yet she comes forward with his personal effects, and now he realizes what he had done. But Tamar, I don't know which is worse, Tamar or Judah, because she propagated it and he went along with it, not knowing, but, I mean, you think about the kind of man he was. And these are people in Jesus' family, in his line. Okay, so nobody in this story looks good. I mean, you have deception, illegitimate children, prostitution, lust, incest. I mean, you go down the list, you see all the sins that are here. Okay, and here's the story of Tamar, and yet she is listed specifically in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. A woman, not just a man that's broken, but a woman in his genealogy. Okay? Now, there isn't any happy ending to Judah and Tamar, except 
that through them God brought Jesus into the world. But he points her out for a reason. We'll get to that. Let me go to the next one in verse 5, Rahab. Now, Rahab is a little more familiar to us probably than Tamar. Remember, Rahab was a resident of Jericho. She's the one that hid the spies when they came in to seek out Jericho to see how strong it was. Massive walls. Remember, Jericho is the city that God commanded the Israelites to walk around seven days. And on the seventh day, they walked around seven times and then blew their trumpets and the walls fell down. Okay, God literally fought the battle and won it for them. And then all they did was go in and clean up the mess after the fact. But as the spies were there, Rahab hides them. She has heard stories about the Israelites, obviously. Now they're spies from Israel. She hides them to protect them so that they won't get caught. And as she's hiding them, guards from the city come and question her about these spies. And she lies, flat out lies. Okay. Now she is in Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith, if we want to call it that. And Hebrews 11.31 says, by faith, Rahab. It doesn't say, by faith, Rahab lied. Okay? It demonstrates her trust in God. So she was trusting God with what she knew at that point. And she's commended for her faith. She's not commended for her lies. But her name is not just Rahab, because as you read the passage uh, in Scripture, in the Old Testament about this story, her name is Rahab the harlot. Now, if you know what a harlot is, it's a prostitute. All right, so now we have two prostitutes already mentioned in the line of Jesus. But she's mentioned here because of her faith. She was a believer, and she eventually joined Israel and went with them into the promised land. Okay, and settled, we don't know what, with what tribe, okay? Judah, obviously, but we don't know exactly where. But um, is there things we can say good about her other than that she was a harlot? Well, she had faith. That's what we know. Other than that, we don't know a whole lot about her, except that she's mentioned here in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and she's in the line of Jesus. So, so far we have Tamar, a woman who resorted to prostitution to get what she thought was deserving her. And now we have Rahab. Rahab was not a Jew. She's a Gentile, by the way. She was a Canaanite and a harlot, and she lied. Okay. You're getting the picture that we see in Matthew chapter 1 so far. Go to verse 5. Another woman is married. This is Ruth. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Ruth, there's not a lot of bad in Ruth. Remember, Ruth marries a Jew. Her mother is Naomi. Her husband dies. Her sister's husband dies. They all go, what are we going to do? And Naomi says, I'm going to go back to Israel where I belong. And Ruth goes with her. Ruth is not a Jew. Ruth is a Moabite. Okay, she is a Moabite woman. Now, to understand Moabites, let me go back to Genesis chapter 19 for a minute. Because you have to go all the way back to Sodom and Gomorrah to understand where Moab fits in the story. Remember, Sodom and Gomorrah, the main character there was Lot. And Lot and his family were taken out of the city by the angels, almost by force. And as they're escaping, they're told not to look back. And you remember the story of Lot's wife. She looks back. She's turned into a pillar of salt. So Lot escapes with two of his daughters. If you keep reading in, in Genesis 19, Lot's daughters realize the mother's gone. They're not married. All their friends are gone now. They have no one that's going to carry on the family line. Lot's not getting younger. And so they have this plan. They're going to lay with their father. They're going to get pregnant. And they're going to carry on his family line. And that's what they do. 
Great. Another mention of this kind of incest in the family line of Jesus. The sons that were born to Lot's daughters were named Moab and Ammon. And they became the heads of the nations of Moab and Ammon, who became arch enemies of Israel. Okay? Ruth was a Moabite. She was from Moab. That was the family she was born into. That's the land she lived in. And she married a Jew. That's how she ended up with Naomi back in Israel. Okay? But the daughters of Lot commit this incest with their father. They have two sons who become the heads of the nations that are arch enemies against Israel. Ruth comes from Moab, which is cursed by God, by the way, if you keep reading in the Old Testament. And yet Ruth becomes a key part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. A Gentile. Enemies of the Jews. Okay? You're getting the picture. One more. Bathsheba, verse 6. Okay, Bathsheba. Now, she's not mentioned by name, but look at the last phrase. It says, well, let me just read the verse. And Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. That's Bathsheba. Solomon was Bathsheba's son, her second son. Remember, the first one died uh, almost just after birth. Okay? So Solomon was Bathsheba's son. Solomon, the greatest, wisest king, man ever to live on the earth, somebody held up as a great king in Israel, and yet he was an illegitimate child, in a sense. Because he was the result of a marriage that came out of deception, murder, adultery, you name it. And yet Bathsheba is mentioned now in the line of Jesus Christ. Okay, so four unlikely women that you would put in a lineage that you want to be carried on through history for people to recognize your family by. I mean, if this was your family tree, you'd hide it in the closet and be like, yeah, we don't want to talk about Aunt Rahab. We just, uh, yeah, she was there, but, you know, we don't have her picture on the wall. Why? Because it brings a stain on the family name. Right? You look back at all of this, and there's nothing nice about any of these stories. It's just sin after sin after sin, especially immorality, rampant immorality all over the place. So summarize this. You've got Tamar, incest, immorality, prostitution. She's a Gentile. Rahab, she's a prostitute. She lied. She deceived people, and she's from Canaan. She's not a Jew. Ruth, a Moabite, enemy of Israel. Bathsheba, Solomon conceived through adultery, through murder. Three of them are Gentiles. Three are involved in some kind of immorality. Two are involved in prostitution. One's an adulteress. And all four are in the family line of Jesus Christ. Women, mentioned in Matthew chapter 1. So why would God include people like that? Not just the men, but why would he include these four women? Not great women by any measure of our imagination, but God includes them here. 
And let me give you some reasons why I think that's true. Number one is because God wants us to understand that his plan of salvation is not specific to the Jews. It includes all nations. And he included people from all nations as part of the line of Christ to teach us that right from the beginning. Now, Jesus' ministry specifically was to the Jews, but he ministered to Samaritans, he ministered to Romans, he ministered to whoever was in need. His ministry was not limited to Jewish people, and his salvation is not limited to Jewish people. Now, many of the believers in in, uh, Jerusalem after Pentecost, they thought, well, this is a Jewish thing, okay? In fact, I, I did a seminary paper last year how the early church, the worship and the function of the early church was patterned after what happened in the Jew, what, you know, how they worshiped in the Jewish synagogues. Many of the things that we do here now came out of the Jewish synagogues. Maybe you didn't realize that. But the early church was all Jews. The first 120, all Jews. Most of the first 3,000 saved at Peter's first sermon, all Jews. So it was very Jewish. But God's salvation was not limited to the Jews. It was for all of the world. John 3.16 doesn't say, for God so loved the Jews. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so as we look at even the genealogy of Jesus Christ, we see that God's plan was not limited to just one specific set of people. It's for anybody. And it doesn't matter what your background is, and it doesn't matter what your worst sins are, or what your lineage is, he can still be your savior. Okay? So that's the first thing that we see in this, that Jesus Christ's salvation is offered to everybody. Look at his family. Second, I think it's a message to people who are self-righteous. I'm good enough. Specifically, Pharisees. I mean, think about Pharisees when they read this lineage. Who is this guy? How can he claim to be God or even righteous? Look at his family. He's not even a pure Jew. But see, it wasn't about righteous people. Titus 3.5, Paul wrote this. He says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. It doesn't matter how righteous we think we are. It doesn't matter how religious we think we are, how much we go to church or how much we put in the offering or how much we pray or how much we do anything. Because we're all broken, sinful, stained family members that need Jesus Christ. So God showed the righteous people something, self-righteous people something here, just even in Jesus' lineage. And it's a stinging rebuke to self-righteousness. If you think you're good enough that God should accept you, should God have accepted Jesus? Because he came from a great family? It doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on your family. It depends only on Jesus Christ and on his mercy and grace for us. So there's a great message to self-righteous people. Nobody deserves to be in the family of God because all of us, either ourselves are defined by this kind of sin or our family is defined by this kind of sin, but none of us are innocent. And none of us are righteous by ourselves. 
And Jesus' lineage proves that. And so your religious works, your lifestyle have nothing to do with your righteousness. The only righteousness that we can claim is Jesus Christ's righteousness. As it's imparted to us as we trust him as our savior. See, the lineage of Jesus even contains, in essence, the message of salvation. He was a perfect man that came from imperfect people. He was a perfect God that came to imperfect people. Because no one was righteous without him. So he did it to send a message to self-righteous people. Third, I think he did it so that we could see God's grace. Okay? And I've already mentioned this. I'm going to ask you this question. Can a prostitute go to heaven? If she trusts Jesus Christ. Can a murderer go to heaven? If she trusts Jesus Christ. Can anybody that sin go to heaven? Absolutely. If Jesus becomes their savior. Nobody's left out of that equation except those who don't believe. When you read these stories of these four women, and, and you go through the men even. I mean, we could take time to look through all the men. They weren't perfect by any means either. We saw Judah. Okay. Who's the hero? If you had to pick one name out of this list, who's the hero? Jesus. That's it. Nobody else. Jesus. So who's the hero of your life story? It should be Jesus. If you're the hero, if you hold some great uncle or your father or grandfather, whoever, if they're the hero, you've got problems. I'm not saying we shouldn't look up to people who have given us a great influence in life, but our hero needs to be Jesus Christ. He's the hero of the story here. It's not about any of these people. It's about Jesus Christ. Okay? None of these people did anything to warrant salvation. In fact, just the opposite. And I think that's why God put him in there. And none of us deserve salvation. That's why Jesus had to come. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not about us. It's about Jesus Christ. You've heard me ask this question before. Why did God save you? And God did save you if you're saved. You didn't do it yourself. But why did God save you? Not so you could go to heaven. Not so you could have a better life on earth. Not even so that you could have a restored relationship with him. The whole point of your salvation is that God would be glorified. Period. Now all the other stuff comes as fringe benefits as God is glorified. Because he provides all of that. But the purpose for your salvation is to show Jesus Christ to the world. Period. He's the hero. The next time you read a genealogy in scripture, this one, or one in Luke chapter 3 about Mary, remember these lessons. There's a reason why they're in there. Take some time. Look up the people that are there. Find out what their life looked like. And then remember that you fit in that same category. Any one of us could be in this list. Okay? If we had lived 3,000 years ago, our name could be here. 
and it doesn't matter what family you come from or how bad you are, we could have been in the line of Jesus Christ if God had chosen that for us. And we're after Jesus Christ. But we can still be in the line of Jesus Christ as his children. But it's not about us. See, and that's where Christmas starts. Jesus Christ is the hero. It doesn't start with the manger. It doesn't start with the wise men or the shepherds. It starts with Jesus Christ. And we have to include all of what we see as the bad parts of the story. Because those are important for us to remember that we're not so great ourselves. Jesus had to come because of me, because of you, because of our sin. That's the only reason we have Christmas. If we weren't sinners, there would be no Christmas. We wouldn't need it. But because we're sinners, Jesus came. And no matter what your past looks like, no matter what your present feels like, no matter what evil deeds you have done or continue to do, you can be in the line of Jesus Christ because he's the one that is perfect. He's the one that is the Savior. He's the one the story is all about. And all we have to do is confess, ask for forgiveness, and submit to his authority and let God put on us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There's your message of Christmas in Matthew chapter 1. The next time you read through this, don't skip it. Okay? There's a reason God put it in there. The good news includes things like this, that Jesus came to save sinners. Here's a list of them. You're in that list. We are all sinners. And praise God for his grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have sent Jesus Christ to be our Savior. That our salvation is not dependent upon us, who we are, what we do, how good we are, or even what family we come from. Lord, help us to see Jesus Christ, that he is the perfect Savior because he was the perfect man. He came for sinners, of which all of us are included. But Lord, because of your grace and your love and your mercy, we have the opportunity to be part of his family. And so, Lord, help us to exalt him as we celebrate his coming to earth as a baby. And help us to remember that as he was born in a manger, he lived a life as a servant, he died on a tree, that he's still alive today, he's in heaven waiting to take us home to be with him. And Lord, we have that hope because that's what you've promised. So help us to keep you in the center of our thoughts, the center of our celebration in the coming weeks, to make Jesus our hero. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with uh, number 101. 101, thou didst leave thy throne and thy kingly crown. It's a statement about Jesus Christ as his story.